Blog Talk Radio. February 28th, 2014 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. That's the philosophy behind, we believe, the right to pursue your own happiness, which is in the Constitution, but I don't think it's defended nearly enough today. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and joining me soon will be cartoonist Josh Boston. Because in the meantime, I'm going to mix, I'm going to blend our butter and coffee. Yeah, we got we got to have that butter and coffee, especially today. I know many of you around the country don't want to hear it, but we actually have weather here in Southern California today. We have had rain all day today. It's actually kind of cold outside. You have to put a sweatshirt on before you go outside. You know, it's it's just uh, it's so sad. Anyway, today we have a good show for you. I am going to be welcoming in the middle of this first hour Jonathan Honig. Many of you know Jonathan Honig. He is a successful hedge fund manager at Capitalist Pig. Go to CapitalistPig.com to read more about that. Many of you also know him from Fox News Cashing In, where he is a commentator on financial and other issues there, and he appears elsewhere on the Fox News Network as well. So I'm going to be happy to welcome him. We are going to talk about his new documentary called Pit Trading 101, which I saw and I enjoyed looking at very much. So we will ask him all about that. You can learn about it. In the meantime, go to my blog at DontLetItGo.com to look at the links to all the other things that we plan to talk about today. We'll have the usual roundup of events of the week. This week, there's a lot of things that are going to be in the category of maybe self-promotion and friend promotion, so I apologize a little bit for that, but there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. One, remember this from a couple weeks ago and, and last week, and this is an ongoing thing, which is that Audible, the audiobook market, is still a sponsor of this show. So if you would like to get a free trial at Audible, which you'll get one free audiobook and a 30-day free trial, go ahead and go check it out. I've got a link at my blog, but you can also, if you're not over there at the blog, you can just enter the URL audibletrial.com forward slash Amy Peikoff, A-M-Y-P-E-I-K-O-F-F, for your free trial at Audible. And those of you who have signed up already, I think you're in for something very good, and thank you for helping to support the show as well. Another cool thing, I actually subscribed to a magazine this week that I didn't think I would be subscribing to, and this was Cosmopolitan. And many of you, you see Cosmopolitan at the store, and you look, maybe you browse through it a little bit, maybe sometimes you pick it up, and... It's sort of like watching a really bad soap opera sometimes. I mean, that was always my thought, that you pick up that magazine, and then if you pick up another one a few months later, it seems like it's close to the same magazine. Surveys about, like, having better sex and the latest thing to make you look perfect from, you know, cosmetic surgery or other procedures. I I don't know. I was... 
I, I haven't really actually looked at it that much in a while. And now I decided, okay, I'm going to subscribe to Cosmopolitan. Why? Because they have shown tremendously good taste in hiring Kira Peikoff to write regular monthly medical mysteries. And what I've put at my blog at DontLetItGo.com is a link to Kira's first medical mystery that she wrote for them, and it's posted online. And what I did find out, actually, I went ahead, I did subscribe to the magazine, and I thought, oh, I'll get to read it in the magazine. That'll be really cool to see Kira in print in Cosmo. How awesome. It turns out it's going to be only in the web edition, uh, at least for now. I'm thinking we should write letters to Cosmo and say how wonderful it is that they have her and that suggest that they put it in the print edition because I think it would be a great addition to the the print edition. There is one exception I wanted to make about Cosmo. Um, I remember butter coffee, here we- butter coffee, here it comes. Coffee with butter, yum. Uh, I, do you remember that if we talked about this on the show, Bosch, there was an article in Cosmo a couple years ago. Maybe, you know, we've, we've been on for about three years now. Mm-hmm. So I think that we had this on the show at one point. But Cosmo... I don't know, maybe I only talked about it in the class. Anyway, Cosmo was giving career advice. They do have career advice columns, and I think that they have some decent stuff in there. And this one time it was basically how to ask for a raise or how to get a raise. That sounds right. Yeah. And the advice was good in the sense that told the, you know, the employee, you know, you, you want to get a raise, do not try to appeal to pity. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Do not appeal to the the pity of the boss. You need to show why you deserve the raise, what value you provide to the company, et cetera. And so I I think I must have used that as an example for an introductory logic class that I taught. I think that's what happened. No one's in chat room. Let's do well, we have, we have people. People feel free okay. to chime in in the chat room over here at Blog Talk Radio. We do have it open. So if, if you are on the Blog Talk Radio uh, you this know, was, web browser. This has begun by the seat of our pants, just for record. <laughs> yeah, we were running at the last minute. There, there's a lot of exciting stuff that's going on. Uh, one thing that just happened this morning, and I'm not going to, I guess, say too many details yeah. about it, but there is a, uh, a head of policy for a big tech company that's going to let me come and speak to them about my ideas on privacy, why it's valuable, how it should be protected properly legally, what tech companies can do in the meantime to help protect customer privacy and stuff like that. So I'm excited to do that. So that was one of the things that was going on this morning as I was running around like a, a maniac. But let me talk a little bit more about Kira's piece at Cosmo. You read the piece this morning, right, Bosch? Uh, just halfway because I was I was running. I mean, you were running around too. <laughs> but, but but you told me about it and it sounds interesting as well. And I, I, I did read half it. Sorry. So so the idea with these medical mysteries is that they are based on true stories. Yeah. Like so like the the one that I I linked to there tells the story of a woman who suffered for decades with a debilitating medical condition mm. until they could discover what it is that she suffered from. And and it may be that she could not have been properly diagnosed until the technology existed, which is very recent. But she persisted. She didn't give up, and she kept going to different specialists. And finally, they discovered that she had a condition that could be treated with the proper medication. So she goes from suffering, you know, partial paralysis, immobility, et cetera, having to use crutches and eventually a wheelchair, to, I think, within days 
gaining strength and being able to walk without crutches and everything and, else. If you could imagine. And, and the title is great too. I mean, about uh, I was uh, I was I was basically crippled for 37 years and pill pill cured me. But um, they referred to the doctor as the child neurologist, meaning there was a neurologist who was a child. So a child neurologist saved her. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's just it's 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 incredible. This lady suffered for decades, decades. I mean, three decades. And doctor after doctor after they doctor all said could it's not. Hopeless. Yeah, they, they all. They, and they couldn't tell her what it was either, which is the kicker. So I, I definitely urge you to read it. It's a it's a moving story. Oh yeah. Uh, I I really enjoyed it, and I wish Kira the best of success with this column. I look forward to reading it myself every month. So definitely go check that out. Then there's on my blog, again, go to don'tletitgo.com, see all the links that we're talking about today. There's a story that was written about Bosch and his work. It's a critical piece yeah. written by apparently a convert to Islam. Is that yes. right, Bosch? I met this guy. His name is A. David Lewis. I met him first 2004, I believe, in um, SPX. It was a small press expo in Maryland. And I was selling uh, my first graphic novel, which is now 10 years old. I can't believe it. 10 years old. Celebrating the 10th, 10th anniversary of Table 4. And anyway, so uh, I was pretty strident then. Now I'm not at all about Islam and Jihad. <laughs> but I was strident back then. And uh, I remember having conversations. He was one of the guys around the table because we used to go to the bar after the show. You know, we, we saw our comics and we go to the bar and we talk. I don't remember anyone really protesting much because I think they were so shocked at what I was saying. <laughs> I really believe that they had nothing to say. They're like, oh, my God, is this guy serious? And then I found that at the end of the uh, the uh, convention that one of the guys walked up to me and whispered, uh, I'm a conservative, by the way, and uh, I'm probably the only conservative in comics and whatever. He quietly came up, and he never said anything during the actual conversation. But anyway, 10 years later, this guy, um, he's been writing about me for the last few years. Uh, always a little you know, negative and critical. And now after the fact, after I read the entire thing, I found that he's a convert, a post 9-11 convert, which to me doesn't make any sense. I mean, you know, born and raised here, post 9-11. What the hell is the appeal to Islam post 9-11? Anyway, so he wrote this one piece, but it was actually very well written. Um, it was actually complimentary about my ability, about my talents. And, but the bottom line is he says at the end that I should sit down with my enemies, Al-Qaeda. You know what I mean? That's so, and and the whole piece, the whole virtue of the piece has to do with the fact that not of his not of his newfound Islam, you know, of his Muslim religion. He's well educated. He's American born, American raised. He understands the culture. He loves comics. You know, now he's a Muslim, but it had nothing to do with the quality of the piece that he wrote. But it was just interesting writing it. And I had this piece called. Um, um, what is it called? Uh, no gray in a black and white fight. It's, it's about pig men. No, don't bring gray in a black and white fight. Don't bring gray. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so his piece was called On the Infidel, Bringing Gray to a Black and White Fight. So he's trying to balance that out. And it's, it's funny also here, he says nothing about those that I'm fighting against, the jihad or jihadists, in any detrimental way. He, he implies that they have nothing to do with Islam without saying so. And that's why, you know, I asked him and I asked the others, where is the Muslim superhero fighting jihad today? They don't do it in real life, you know, Muslims, and they sure as hell don't do it in fiction. But it was an interesting piece, nonetheless. You might be interested in checking it out. It's called um, On the Infidel, Bringing Gray to a Black and White Fight in Islamic Commentary website. Yeah, and I do have the link at, posted at my blog, don'tletgo.com, with all the other stories. You know, you had said that he said, oh, sit down with your enemy, but yeah. didn't he, through a clarification, say that he thought he was included? No, no, when I called him out on that, he said, fair enough. And then he said, well, I was thinking about maybe me. 
And, then we and, were, I, and I said, well, he, he must want to have a beer with you. Yeah, but he can't. <laughs> <laughs> a beer and bacon or a bacon beer. No, but uh, he seems like a decent guy. Uh, he just, you know, he happens to be Muslim now, and I don't know what the hell the appeal was. Uh, again, uh, but he's, I heard an interview recently, he seems like an over-educated He's he's a you know guy he's, he's a PhD he's very liberal not a PhD yeah oh. very liberal and he slaps on the fact that he's now Muslim and he also was praising this one surah a chapter in the Quran recently I was telling him are you praising the one the whole chapter where they it's all at war against all non-Muslims that that one as well and it was just it was interesting to to find that one of the best pieces one best profile is written on me happens to be by a liberal slash Muslim interesting. <laughs> So yeah, you gotta sit down for a beer with him, have some bacon, yeah, you know. Yeah. He can't have it, but he can watch you. State Defiance in the chat room over here at Blog Talk Radio says that it sounds like this guy needs a visit from Pigman. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he also says something. Well, you know, he he probably I guess he hates Pigman. I mean, he doesn't say anything positive about it. But Pigman is fighting those that they claim have hijacked Islam, the jihadists. So why aren't they behind Pigman? They can't be. But we were going back and forth on, on Twitter, and he said something about, um, well, I thought you would hold me as the enemy. I said, I don't hold you as the enemy. He goes, well, I thought maybe because I'm a Muslim now. I said, well, I, I also have non-Muslim Muslims as uh, cousins who I don't mind. He goes, how do they feel when you call them non-Muslim Muslims? I said, uh, no, do they take offense when you call them non I said, yes, they all take offense to the truth because they are non-Muslim Muslims. They eat pork. They drink. They have dogs. They treat their, their wives with respect. I mean, they're not Muslim in any way. Anyway. Speaking of Muslims, I didn't even put this story as a link on because I didn't want to sully my blog with it. But there's a story on the top left of Drudge today. Did you see it? Which one? Some Syrian rebels or something. They chopped somebody's hands off and they live tweeted. Yes, or yes. What now, in the world? Now, keep that in mind, though. That is in perfect sync with Islam. Islam chops hands and feet off of thieves, off of other people for certain things. That's, that's Islam in action. It's not the deviancy. It's not some Syrians being extreme. This is in sync with Islam. It's a totalitarian system yeah. when the Muslims take over the government. And so they destroy productivity. They probably push people into trying to steal from those who happen to hoard all the oil money that they don't deserve, right? right. Uh, and then they'll chop their hands off for it. It sounds exactly perfect. Right. So anyway, yeah, I did not want to put that there. But let's let's go on to a different topic. We'll go from Islam to my topic, which is privacy. If you go what? to PJ Media, you can check out my latest piece, which I had published over the weekend, How Privacy Became Illegal. And I've got a link to that over again at my blog, don'tletitgo.com. It, it's a shorter piece, so those of you who are a little bit overwhelmed by my 2,000-plus word piece or whatever that I had last time, this is about 700 words, quite readable. And it just lays out the legal development by which privacy, in effect, in this country became illegal. And I really do think it's ironic that by instituting this reasonable expectation of privacy test, which supposedly promised to give us more privacy than we would have had if we were restrained to the old trespass doctrine test, right? This reasonable expectation of privacy test is the thing that made the third party doctrine possible. And that's the thing that has made in effect privacy illegal. So I think uh, it's worth just checking out and 
we really do have to get rid of that darn thing. I was kind of heartened to hear this week that in the new Fourth Amendment ruling that just came down from the Supreme Court, the one in which in which the Supreme Court said, it's okay, the police do not have to have a warrant if someone in the home allows them in, uh, that one of the dissenters was, again, Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor, huh. with whom I don't share a whole lot, uh, is on the issue, the, you know, is on the side of that particular ruling that I like, but she is also on the right side with respect to the third party doctrine. Recall in U.S. versus Jones, she has the concurrence in which she calls for reconsidering it, and that may be hmm. a huge opening that we have if a lot of the pending cases come before the court. But anyway, go can ahead I, and check out my little piece. Yeah. Can I just say something about the fifth anniversary of the Tea Party? Oh, sure. I mean, course. sorry, of uh, Occupy. It's the fifth anniversary of Occupy. <laughs> oh, sorry, Tea Party, actually. And uh, I made this one poster. It's, uh, it's called Tea Party To-Do List. It's, uh, it's a Tea Party with a placard and says, uh, read I- it's a Tea Party To-Do List. Read, Ayn- read and understand Ayn Rand. Uh, defeat GOP leaders. Take over GOP. Give the left the fight of their lives. And then uh, save America. And that's uh, it, it, it's five years strong. Still alive and well, no matter what the critics are saying. And I think uh, they made a difference, and I think they'll make a further difference this midterm elections and 2016. I, I really hope so. Now, the latest that we heard is that the GOP frontrunner is Rand Paul. Is that right? Yeah, but then also some other polls said that um, Ted Cruz. So, so both of them are kind of, of running neck and head. neck. And I, one thing, just about Rand Paul, he's such a flip-flopper. But one thing I really like about him of late is he's willing to go out and punch these leftists in the nose and have them respond to him. And he treats them with absolute disrespect, which I really like. Even Chris Christie. He goes after Chris Christie. And I, I like that attitude. He, uh, he was asked about the war on women, you know, about the Republicans. He goes, war on women? He goes, who are, who are you talking about? Look at Bill Clinton. He's a predator. I like that. I really like it. It's, it's fighting words against a scum. And uh, I wish Ted Cruz had a little more of that in him. But that's one value I really like about uh, uh, Rand Paul. I yeah. like it. He's willing to fight, willing to get in the mud with these rats. I like it. Well, get in the mud a little bit just to point them out. Oh, yeah, absolutely right. No, and not to stay in the mud. I, I think it's a but, good thing. But what I'm saying is if they're in there, you've got to go there sometimes and knock them down a peg. We do have a phone call. We'll go ahead and take it here while we're still waiting for Jonathan Honig to join us for the interview. Hi, who's this? Hi, Amy. Hi, Bosh. It's Mike Cradless. How are you guys? Hey, Mike. Doing fine. How are you? Doing good, thanks. Uh, yeah, I just... Uh, I just started listening or right before you mentioned the uh the Supreme Court decision on uh now police can come into your home uh only if they're uh only if they get the okay from the occupant, kinda of like vampires. You they can only come in if you invite them in. <laughs> uh, and I like uh, that. and and I heard uh I listened to the Tammy Bruce's comments on the on the decision. And it was, uh, and I'm sure you pointed that out as well. But it's interesting that the, the decision broke completely on gender lines. The six men voted for it, and the three women voted against it. Yeah, you know, it was it was ironic too because I gather, and you know, I, I actually listened to Tammy's coverage of the decision, and I haven't read much about it myself, and that's why I didn't put on the links for the program notes for today. But she had pointed out 
that it was a woman, a girlfriend, who let the police into the place. So the woman let the police in, and it's the women yeah. who are dissenting from the decision. I don't know if it was somehow saying, well, the woman doesn't really know what she's doing. I was kind of wondering if that was part of their well, the, thinking. The, the, well, the interesting part about that is they, the guy, the, like the, the man who I guess was the suspect, uh, he refused to let the police in. He goes, he goes, he goes, you need a warrant. I know my rights. You don't have a warrant. You don't come in. Well, so and I'm not, even, I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure in that situation that there couldn't have been some other warrant exception, given that he, you know, there was all the noise and he had just maybe ran away from committing a crime that they were aware of. I'm wondering if there had been, there would be another reason that they could have gone in without the warrant. But I mean, besides the fact, if they left and then come back an hour later, they could have gotten a warrant in that time, right? So that's just yeah, exactly. And uh, well, even with with uh, cell phones and everything else, like I just call a judge. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, you know, and then I, and then and then send someone down there to get it. But the, the thing is, the, the guy refused entry, and so they arrested him. And they they arrested him and took him downtown, and then they came back an hour later. Like you said, they could have got a warrant themselves by then. And, they, and then they came back and asked the woman, can we come in? So what's she going to think? And she has kids. What are they going to well, say? Right. And uh, then, you, you, and you, you don't let us in. We'll have, to, you know, we'll have to take you downtown. Your kids go into social services. I hope your kids are okay. And so I've, it I've, just becomes I mean, I've, one I've giant the, piece of extortion. I've had the same thing. I've been out at night, and um, I don't know if uh, you know the Pasadena area, but in Pasadena, sure they will they will sometimes have traffic stops, right? And mm-hmm. uh, they'll just they'll just stop everybody and they'll mm-hmm. ask you questions. I can't remember what the questions are, and I do it too. I mean, I know my rights, right? I'm an attorney. I have a PhD. I'm way too educated. But if a policeman is talking to me through my window when I'm in my car. I, I end up telling him more than I actually need to or that he's even asked for. I just start, you know, giving more. Now, I have nothing to hide, right? I'm not doing anything wrong, but it's just really weird how this policeman talking to you just makes you share more than you otherwise would. And yeah, I, yeah. I, I well, think that's and, and the only the only trip, I live in I live in South Pasadena, which is okay. just a, a little city just southeast of Pasadena. And uh, I've, the only checkpoints I've seen like that in Pasadena have been uh, sobriety checkpoints. Um, right. You know, usually like on Labor Day weekend or a big holiday weekend, they'll 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 set them up in certain certain uh, high traffic areas in the city. Uh, but yeah, you're right. When 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 a policeman starts asking you questions, you you start you start uh, telling him everything. And yeah, it, I, think, I, think, I think I think I pulled out, out my. I was going to say, I think I pulled out my driver's license even though the guy hadn't asked for it or something. I mean, you, uh-huh. you're just like, okay, here, my I, registration, my I insurance. Pulled out my, you know? <laughs> I pulled out my blunt also. I was like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, that. I, th- I think that's just natural. And then the other thing that I was thinking when I was hearing Tammy talk about this the other day was how it's somewhat of an extension of this evil third-party doctrine. The idea is that you have let somebody else into your home. You are, in effect, sharing the home and the information that could be gleaned from the home with this third party. And so, therefore, screw your expectation of privacy. It's out the window. It's no longer reasonable, and we, we can come in. So I see it as sort of a, an analog to it. We've got to nip this thing in the butt, so to speak. 
Um, it's oh yeah, uh, yeah, 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 definitely. And it's it's, it's your what what was that, Bosch? I didn't hear you. No, it's just it's becoming intolerable. This whole thing. I I tweeted this earlier. I said Americans are now preoccupied with thinking of ways to protect ourselves from those who have sworn to protect us, our own government. It's absolutely intolerable. And uh, with Obama in power, it seems like everyone outside of him, the governors now, mayors, even even cops, everyone's stepping over the line a little more than they used to. Right. Well, it's, and, it's, and, and sometimes it's, it's, sometimes it's these cases, right, where, again, the, the particular case from w- what little I know of it, you know, here's this, I think, an armed robbery or something that had just been committed, and the police, you know, they see the suspect run into this building, and then they go in the building and they hear noise from a certain unit and then they know it's this guy. Um, there seems in our minds, I think, to be reason that we're, we're sympathetic with the police getting a warrant and going in at this point. And I don't like when they have a case where you think, OK, they have other grounds on which they could have yeah. gotten into this place to search. And yet they're trying to come up with a new rule that can be extended to other situations in which the only ground on which they would have to search a place is that an occupant gave I mean and then who qualifies as an occupant you know is it just a friend who's over visiting for the day and you stepped out to go buy some cream for the coffee and the police were watching and they said oh she stepped out to go get cream for the coffee let's go see if we can get permission to go in her house I mean I don't know right well yeah well you're right and and it's it's the it's the it's the Pandora's box that uh that, that everyone's afraid of. And Bosch, back to your comment about about uh, how all this has gone at warp speed since Barack Obama has been elected president. That's true. And 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 a decision like this, you have, I mean, why should why should governors, why should a county sheriffs, why should local police forces think that they need to actually abide by the law and get warrants for searches when they see the federal government, the highest the highest halls of, halls of power not being held accountable to that at all to get no anything doubt. from anybody. So, no doubt. I mean, it, it starts at the top. That, it, yeah, and, 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 uh, and, it, it, and it runs downhill. I mean, if, if, if people on the ground see the federal government not being held to any sort of constitutional standard, it, it just makes sense that eventually the people down at the county and local levels are going to say, well, no one else has to do this. Why, why the hell do we have to do it? It makes Absolutely. sense. And, yep. and, and the worst part about, about what I've heard in the, uh, the uh, decision from the Supreme Court is, is, that, it, is that it makes, it makes law enforcement more efficient. It makes it faster for them to do this without a warrant. It makes it more efficient. And that just smacks a top-down tyranny. Yep. I, I mean, right. if they had webcams in every single one of our rooms of all of our homes in the entire United States, it would be super efficient, right? Yep. And <laughs> Obama's right. Yeah. building his big new database. You know, is a, let's expand the data center. Why? Well, let's use the lawsuits filed against the government as a pretext to expand the data center, et cetera. Mike, we have to zoom on because we're getting ready to get the interview going with Jonathan Honig. But yeah, feel free to call back in later when we're talking about more of the news, and we appreciate you calling in. Okay, guys, thanks. Have a good one. Great, you too. Thanks, Mike. Thanks very much. Let me get over to what I wanted to do just before we we welcome Jonathan Honig to the show, and that is talk a little bit about 
the veto of the Arizona Religious Freedom Bill that right. occurred this week. So first it was that they were maybe or maybe not going to pass this bill. They passed the bill, then it was, was Governor Brewer going to sign it or was she going to veto it? Mitt Romney wanted her to veto it, so that's she right. did. No, I don't know if that's the reason. But she vetoed this bill. And one of the things that we talked about when we guest host for Tammy Bruce on Tuesday, we're doing this every other week now during the semester. Yeah. So if you are interested in listening to us twice a week, you can get the podcast. You can always listen live. Tammy's show live is between 4 and 6 p.m. Pacific time, which is between 7 and 9 p.m. Eastern time. So you could always listen to that live and here on pretty, Blog Talk Radio. pretty heated uh, show, I think, that one. Yeah. Because of the CPAC, not, not allowing atheists, not allowing, uh, I guess, homosexuals to have a booth there. They're alienating uh, people who are on their side, which is pathetic. Right. But in, in particular about the Arizona bill, yeah. I said, okay, you know, I'm against this bill because it's discriminatory <laughs> against atheists. Against atheists. And I talk yep. about the entire thing during that show. If you would like to get podcasts, if you can't listen to the Tammy Bruce show live, go ahead and support my show and you will get access to the Dropbox recordings of all of our Tammy Bruce appearances. So that was the link right there. Another thing that you'll get if you're a supporter of the podcast is that we are going to have a meetup for podcast supporters at yeah. the Objectivist Conference this summer. I put a link to Objectivist Conference 2014, again, at my blog, don'tletitgo.com. They just recently announced who the speakers are and essentially what the program is in structure, but they haven't said in particular on what days which speaker is scheduled. I haven't seen that filled in yet. I will be giving one talk and appearing on at least one panel. I think there might be another panel in which I will appear, but some of it is still being fleshed out. But I'm going to give at least one talk. Definitely go check it out. You may not want to register until you see more specifics, but one thing that we're going to do is all the supporters will uh, be asked to go ahead and come and meet us yeah. at the conference. We'll have a special meetup for everybody. Do, if you are a supporter and you are coming to the conference, send me an email. Yeah. All the supporters have my email address. Yes, send me an email and let me know when you'll be there because not everyone's going to be there for the entire time of the conference. And so I will want to set a date where we can get everyone together or at least as many people as possible. So if you are coming... Let me know. Without further ado, I think we are ready to welcome Jonathan Honig. I think this is probably going to be him, although it looks like it's from a number I don't recognize. Is this Jonathan? This is Jonathan. Hey, okay, Jonathan. so Jonathan, if for those people who don't know him again, is a successful hedge fund manager at Capitalist Pig. So go to CapitalistPig.com to find out more about that. If you are a bigger investor, you can actually be part of his hedge fund. If you are a smaller investor, you can hire him for a consult. The other thing that he does, and many of you probably know him for appearing on Fox News and cashing in every Saturday, which is a lot of fun, and you talk about financial and other issues on that show. When you appear, Jonathan, in other shows, are you usually commenting on financial issues or you speak about other issues as well? Uh, you know, honestly, Amy, and, and thank, thanks for being with me. I mean, I've, or thanks for having me, I should say. I, you know, I've, I've been on O'Reilly and, and Bill Maher and with John Stossel, but uh, to be on Don't Let It Go Unheard is, is a real, real pleasure for me. So thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming. Are you crazy? No, my gosh. My, my, you come on my little show compared to 
Bill Maher and John Stossel and O'Reilly in particular. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, I have uh, my complaints about O'Reilly, but he's got a uh, huge audience. <laughs> Uh, unlike unlike th- them, I mean, I think you guys, and one of the reasons you're so successful is that you're able to boil down oftentimes complex issues into their essentials, into their fundamentals. That's a great skill, I think, for, for anyone, certainly anyone who's interested in philosophy. It's also a pretty good skill, you know, for the media, for TV, in which oftentimes you only have, you know, literally 30 seconds or a minute and a half to try to make a salient point. Um, so that's, it's, you know, whether it's, and you do that well. or philosophy. That's no, definitely what I try to do. I'm, you, know, you do that well, Jonathan. You really, yeah, we, really we've make see, we've seen you on cashing in a number of times where you're just able to get punches. right in. Yeah, make make it a really incisive comment. That's important. But I have just now, and I'm not joking. I have just now integrated in my mind why it is that you're able to do this on Fox News and cashing in where you have a few seconds to make an important <laughs> right. point, and it's because you engaged in pit trading. Right. <laughs> I, absolutely right. Because I was watching this, okay, and you know, full, it's, it's like a different full, world. Full disclosure: I was watching your documentary, Pit Trading 101. I watched it last night, but I purposefully put it off till last night because I wanted it to be super fresh, fresh in my mind for today's interview. But I watched this, and afterwards, I told Bosch, I said, I don't think I could ever do that. Yeah. I just don't know that my brain could operate <laughs> quickly enough. I think I think it could, but I know successfully what you mean. execute it the trades that they had to do as so quickly. So esoteric, as... it's so of, of a different era. It's like whoa! I mean, this is interesting stuff. I mean, I, these people they really have to want to do it in order to do it well, or else it doesn't happen. I mean, you got to be passionate. Yeah. About it. Anyway, that's that's yeah. that's my integration. But we we should back up, Jonathan, because uh, first of all, just tell the audience for people who don't know what is. Pit trading. I mean, I got to see you get, deliver a talk on this at the Objectivist Conference in Chicago last awesome. year, and I, I really loved it. And I told you afterwards, I, you know, I was fascinated by the language that pit traders use. But what is pit trading, or what was? Well, thanks, Amy. And, and in fact, this, this documentary, Pit Trading 101, which you can find at pittrading101.com, was born out of exactly just that—that that Ocon conference from last summer. And I, I'll certainly be at next summer's Ocon. I hope a lot of your listeners are as well. But you know, I gave a, a, a seminar, a, a speech about pit trading uh, and what was life like just 15, 16 years ago uh, on the floor of Chicago's legendary futures and options exchanges. Um, and, you know, before I was allowed mouth on TV, I was actually one of those traders that you see in the pit, and that image that has just become completely synonymous with, with capitalism and with trade with markets in this country. Um, so pit trading is... Um, you know, a, a, a term used to describe the way in which futures and options for 160 years were traded in this country. They were traded not on computers, not on electronics, and other, it's so ubiquitous in our lives now, but, uh, you know, for decades and decades prior to the existence of computers and electronics, uh, you know, tr- derivatives and markets existed in a place. They existed in an octagon-shaped pit uh, right down here in the middle of the loop of Chicago, where a group of men and women, mostly men, uh, would, would gather together and trade with each other and trade with the entire world. And Pit Trading 101 kind of puts you in the shoes of learning how that Bosch, to your point, completely uh, unusual, chaotic uh, environment operated because it operated very well for a long, long time. 
Incredible. So let me ask you, when you are trading, I realize these traders on the floor are trading with each other, but who are they representing? Are they representing themselves? Or are they representing other people? How do they know what to buy, what to sell? Well, I, mean, I think that's one of the things that attracted me to pit trading, Amy, and, and attracts a lot of objectivists, is that speculation and markets, and particularly this activity of trading on the floor of a commodity exchange, really, in my mind, was the ultimate individualist uh, uh, job, individualist role. I mean, a pit trader works for himself, by himself, uh, for himself, and trades not clients' money or uh, some bank's money or the Federal Reserve's money, trades his own money. So those men and women, by and large, that you'd see on the floor of the exchange screaming and yelling, uh, work for themselves. And they're really a, a testament to self-reliance, to confidence uh, and the ability to profit and succeed. And, and then, you know, I mean, can you imagine having a job in which there was no salary? Uh, can you imagine hmm. having a job where you could, you know, come as often as you want or as little as you want? Um, it, you know, it, pit trading was often called the last bastion of pure physical capitalism. And I think it's really true. It, it was the ultimate individualist and I think that's one of the reasons that attracted it to me in the first place. Well, but so let me ask you, if you wanted to invest on whatever was sold in the markets there and the, and the, it's commodities, right? Uh, like Correct. futures and like wheat or corn or I don't I mean, what, what, what sorts of things? No, exactly. Wheat, corn, soybeans, the, the market that you see uh, the students learning about in the film. And I'm, I'm, as you said, one of those students is still what is the market's most popular futures contract, which it is a commodity, although the commodity is, is the stock market itself. It's the S&P 500 uh, uh, futures contract that back then in 1996 was traded on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And, I mean, honestly, Amy, part of what, and Bosch, what attracted it to me in the first place um, was the energy of the marketplace itself. It's really something that's hard to describe when you walked into one of these commodities exchanges. I mean, it was, imagine a huge amphitheater. Uh, you know, when, when observing yeah. this scene back in, in, uh, in the late 80s, New York Times said that if Dante had added another ring to his vision of hell, it would have looked like the, <laughs> the, the, the New York, uh, the uh, Chicago Board of Trade bond pit. So, you know, I guess the one thing also, sorry, 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 Jonathan, Sorry, oh, sure, it, reminded sure. of, it reminded me of like a coliseum. I mean, it really, really did. Yeah. It's a hardcore. Yeah, I mean, people it, are really aggressive. And one thing also, the instructor would kept telling you guys, uh, basically, think about yourself, what you're doing. Don't worry about the guy next to you, the lady next to you. Just focus on what you're doing. And that was also to speak up to your individualist aspect of it. Absolutely. I mean, it was exactly that, Bosch, a coliseum of yeah. hundreds and hundreds of men all acting out of their own self-interest, all right. in it for the money, all right. wanting to profit. Uh, and how are they profiting? By trading. Um, you know, we, we nowadays have this image as, you know, the financiers and speculators as these nefarious shysters. That's exhibit, existed for a long time. But I think pittrading101.com really demonstrates, you know, what traders do. They trade, and they trade with each other, but oftentimes um, trade with uh, you know, th those who want to execute in the marketplace. So even now, you know, when you're, when you're buying your mutual fund or buying your, your uh, share of stock, 
uh, oftentimes someone in the futures market is actually going to be on the other side of that trade, uh, allowing you to participate in, in operate in the markets like that. So it, it all used to happen in that place, though, on that floor with that energy. And, you know, any, I used to say that anything in the world that happened would be filtered through that, you know, 20 by 20 pit in the middle of yeah. Chicago. Uh, everything from the weather to financial reports to political events, it all factors into the marketplace, and it all factors through that pit and through the hands and voices of those couple of dozen traders. I mean, to me, it's truly amazing that the markets would function as well as they did yeah. when relying on people doing those physical gestures in the, you know, in the market. I have, so two follow-up questions. Suppose you're someone who wanted to execute a trade in that market and yet you're not going to get down and become a trader yourself, would you hire one of these pit traders to execute a trade for you? Is that what you would do? Exactly. Well, the, the, you wouldn't hire one, but you would – well, let, let's back up for a second. I mean, what, what, were the traders, what are the traders standing in the pit doing? Um, more often than not, they don't have a view about where the market is going. So they're actually standing there, and they're willing to buy or sell – usually any quantity at any time. So if you want to sell it, they'll buy it from you. If you want to buy it, they'll sell it to you. So when we talk about the value of speculators is adding liquidity. You've heard that term quite about adding liquidity to the marketplace. Um, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's a real value so that when you or I come along and, you know, maybe we're not paying too much attention to the economic news, we just know we want to get out of the stock market. So we call our broker and say, you know what, sell my 401k, it's $10,000, just sell it. Uh, you know, the, one of these guys or gals will, would be, in effect, on the other side of that trade. So they're standing in the pit oftentimes not with a, a particular guess about which way the market is going, but they're going to keep buying and selling, trying to make just a little tick in between the buy and the sell price sure. and make money. Yeah. But, but then so there they is like – didn't yeah, have a but real – yeah. There is like one person, you know, again, suppose I want to sell, you know, whatever stake I have in the stock market. Um, there is one person who actually goes into the pit. I mean, this is how it used to be. Yeah. They go into the pit and they would be saying, okay, I offer to sell however many shares, you know, or contracts and as you call them, right? However many contracts. And then somebody else would buy it. So there are representatives yeah. of people who are not oh, pit oh, traders yeah. in there. That's just it. I mean, even this film was shot in 1996, and back then there were 10,000 traders on the floor. Today there's oh. just about a couple hundred at uh, best. But exactly right. I mean, Amy, if you wanted to sell futures contracts back in 1996, you would call your broker. He would then call someone on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. They'd read, write your order down on a little slip of paper, which would be given to a runner, who would then physically run that piece of paper over to a broker in pitch who would then announce that order, and, you know, they, they might say, they wouldn't say, Amy Peacock wants to sell no, 10 no. shares. <laughs> They'd say, 50 at double, 50 at double. Now, what is double? Well, double, yeah. was, the shorthand, double was the shorthand slang for 55, right? Because think about it, when it's loud and crazy, you say 55 could sound like 25, it could sound by 35. So, you know, just like the Carnegie Deli uh, refers to a pastrami as a pistol, in the, in, the, in the pits, you used to have shorthand to help make the language more effective. So 25, you wouldn't say 25, you'd say quarter. 55, right. you'd say double. And this is how – so exactly, you, your trade, Amy, would be made with an individual. And they would write 
one broker's name on a trading card, or the other broker would write a name on a trading card. Those trading cards would get collected, passed in, and then reconciled over the course of the night. It sounds so completely archaic today in you know, our iPhone and hyperactive trading world, but this was the system of pit trading that existed and thrived for decades and decades. Let me so that pricing when you say a double is fifty five and a quarter is twenty five, what does that mean? Does it mean a quarter of a dollar? It means twenty five dollars. I mean, what a quarter of what? Well, what's what's also interesting is a lot of times traders would be successful in markets in which they really had no experience or knowledge of the commodity itself. I mean, I, I interned or I should say clerked for a, a gentleman for a while who worked in the Deutschmark pits back when there were Deutschmarks. He didn't know the first thing about Germany. He didn't know much about international politics, but you know he knew how to trade. He understood trading as a skill. So uh, when we talk about 55 or 25, that would literally be the last two digits of a price. So okay. let's say that the, Deut- the Deutschmark could be at, you know, futures contract could be at Eight six five two, and so the the futures trader would in the pit say, "I'll sell a hundred at two, a hundred at two, because of course everyone would know what the handle is the term, what the other numbers would be." Um, okay. So it you know it, it developed as this shorthand of of communication that really is a lost language now. Um, you know you, people can't really understand or speak pit as. They yeah. just did because it, it's it's not used. But those are the types if, of uh, and then of course with your hands as well. You know, it's going if with uh, if I if I threw you in the pit today, Jonathan, could you survive? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's unfortunately there is really no more pit to speak of. At least pit as we knew back then, and as the film depicts at, at pittrading101.com. I mean, you know, as I said, we've gone from about ten thousand traders to a couple hundred on a very good day. And it's, it's, Amy, it's, it's really not the raucous, uh, sweaty, angry, um, physical type of activity anymore. And, you know, I think that's a good thing. You know, I don't want to go back to elevator operators. I don't want to go back to, uh, to, you know, to uh, Pullman porters and black and white TV. So I'm, I'm certainly pro-technology. But I look back at this way of life that I had the, really the pleasure and honor of participating in. And, you know, it, 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 uh, not only did I learn a lot, but I think it, it helped me even as a thinker. I mean, Ayn Rand always talks about the trader as being a man of justice. And I think I learned that very much firsthand on the, on the floor of the Mercantile Exchange and the Port of Trade. And I, I think you get a sense of that from Pit Trading 101 overall. That was a question that I did have for you, was that even though that style of trading is not required today because we've got point and click and computers, do you think that your experience doing that physically – taught you something valuable that you bring to your work today? And, you know, as a follow-up, would you recommend that people who are aspiring traders actually learn this as some way that would help them? I mean, would it help them in some way? Um, I, I, think, I think all investors and all traders and anyone with an interest in markets will, could certainly get something out of it. And, you know, I, I, think, I think I did take away, and one can take away a lot of, of lessons from the pit, Amy, and one of which is, you know, the acceptance of reality. You know, in a point-and-click world, it's very easy not to look at your screen, to walk mm. away, to kind of avoid the reality of a market that might be going against you, might be hurting you. Right. Um, but right. certainly in the pit, you saw that when you, you bought it at even, and all of a sudden it's at 95, 90, 85, 80. 
uh, and the, the roar of the telephones and the roar of the traders, and the, you almost felt your body being lifted up in this, this melee of trade. <laughs> um, it was hard to, hard to ignore. So um, definitely, and, and then I think not only just a respect for reality, but, you know, a pride and a self-confidence. Um, you know, it, this is not a place, as you guys alluded to, for the meek and quiet. So if you yeah. wanted to buy it, you had to raise your voice and your arms that you had to be the one who had to be noticed. You had to be the one who'd get the trade out of everyone else in that kit of 500 men. So it was a place where self-confidence and, and, uh, and, and getting noticed and being an individual is really what, what made, made, made for success. Awesome. Okay, everyone, you're listening to Jonathan Honig. Again, he has just recently released Pit Trading 101, which you can find at pittrading101.com. And I wanted to turn the discussion a little bit more to the documentary itself. So this documentary was compiled, in effect, from a bunch of footage that was taken by a it – was, it was at a weekend school, I guess, that you attended for aspiring traders, right? Can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, in, in 1996, I was a college student, um, you know, spending my days not not at Jürgen Habermas's class, but uh, in the library watching 20-minute delayed <laughs> quotes on the Bloomberg machine they they had there. Um, so I was just I was just dying to get into the marketplace, and this is what I, this was my passion. So I attended a school that was quite popular at the time called the University of Trading, um, and you know there was. You know, there was a few ways to kind of get started at the Board of Trade. You either could have connections or a family friend, or you could, which I did not, or you could register for this school, which would basically just give you a taste of what that, that environment was like. So um, I came and got my trading jacket and began to learn it like, like everyone else, like all the other students there. There also happened to be a film crew there uh, that had been shooting for a pilot, a television pilot that was never made. Didn't think anything about it, you know, for literally 17 years. The footage became available to me by one of the producers who was a producer through uh, uh, our local t- uh, WTTW here, the PBS station here, made the footage available to me. And obviously over the course of that period, I mean, the whole world has changed. Back in 96, mm-hmm. you know, you would go into pitch rating as a career that was still seen as a completely legitimate business to pursue and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kids and, and young people tried to do, do just that. You know, today no one is, uh, you know, right. ending up to be a pit trader. It just doesn't exist anymore. So when I saw it, I said, you know, let me see if I can put this into something that, you know, reflects those times and can teach some, some lessons for today's traders as well. I, I really uh, enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed a lot of the emphasis, which I assume was just the nature of the beast. It wasn't like the instructor's were objectivists in any way necessarily, but that they had the focus on the individual, on thinking for yourself, not being worried what the guys around you think or do, et cetera. Uh, It it was just the the nature of the trade that you were doing. And and I also found fascinating the follow-up stories about people afterwards. Uh, One of them, unfortunately, you had said, uh, ended up dying of brain cancer or something yeah. sad, but um, one of the girls. Yeah, what, one of, one of the women. She was really passionate. She ended up doing something related, but not exactly doing with pit trading. So that was interesting too. Um, but I, you know, was, I was surprised, Jonathan, because I expected to learn more about you 
or see a little bit more focus on you or maybe that you would narrate it. Tell me about your decision not to really play too prominent a role in the documentary itself. Well, I mean, I, I, uh, for one thing, I hadn't, the camera had not taken a lot of footage, footage of me, for better or worse. There wasn't a lot of footage of me to, to choose from, but you know, I, I really wanted to focus much more on the, the craft and the culture of, of pit trading and this, this environment itself. Um, and you, you guys are right. I mean, it, even back then, as I was a young person, it's a, it's, you know, selfishness was hard to kind of get on board with. Yeah. You know, I mean, Bosch, to your point, it's like, yeah, you had to, you had to stick your hands up and not worry, am I getting in the, the guy's next to me's way? Right. Or am I, am I too loud in his ear? Or right. are we supposed to be talking now? You know, the trading floor is a place where you had to be confident to raise your voice, to raise your arm, to be aggressive, to be self-interested. Um, yeah. You know, it wasn't, wasn't one of the traders says in the, in the film, uh, he says, you know, it's not a place where they, people say, all right, hey, I'll just toss you one, you're a good guy. This is a place that you had to fight for every single dollar and oftentimes went home not just with no dollars but having lost tens of thousands of dollars. Wow. Um, so this is really, uh, uh, I'd say, probably one of the more unusual work environments in history. Then it'll never be repeated again because they're, right. they're not going to build any more trading pits. Right. How, how many years did you actually spend on the floor? Good question, I suppose. I, I was there from 98 to 2000. And by 2000, the, the computer systems on the floor, the trade mechanisms, really started to have a demonstrable impact. Um, you know, the, so essentially, imagine you'd be on the floor trading, and then there was also a computer screen that was on the floor that would also be trading the same exact market. And when I first started, you know, it was, it was a very thin and inactive, but not surprisingly, as time went on, people became more and more comfortable um, you know, I mean, for many, many years, the sense was that the floor would always exist, that, you know, trade had to happen in that octagon pit, that there's something about the human-to-human connection. And I think, I think that's been proven uh, wrong, that people still connect. In fact, many more people connect. Today, right. anyone can do what I used to do on the floor of the exchange. You open up a futures account, you can be the best bid or the best offer in the trillion-dollar worldwide commodities markets. So it's even better now. It's been opened up to anyone. Um, right. But, it, you know, it, 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 uh, the, the film tells the story of days gone by. Yeah. Um, in terms of the financial risk, and you talk about losing tens of thousand dollars in a day or whatever, what actually happened? Did you have a credit line somewhere such that you could make it up the next day? What was at risk? Well, I mean, when you trade futures, you put down margin which is a small percentage of the overall value of whatever the, the contract you wanna, you're going to trade. So you might put down $5,000 and be able to buy or sell $100,000 worth of corn or soybeans or wheat or anything else. So you know, it's, a, it's a very leveraged game. And at the end of the day, if you were, if you were down five, ten, fifteen thousand $15,000, it's gone. Out of your, it's taken out of your account. Uh, conversely, wow. if you would make it, you know, then it's in your account. You know, one of the things we don't get into in the film was, you know, the, having to have the emotional ballast to deal mm. with, uh, you know, irregular income, making $30,000 one day and giving it all back the next. And, you know, I think, I think that's something that today's traders can identify with as well. The markets are very volatile, and, uh, and you see that uh, play out quite a bit in pittrading101.com. 
Excellent. No, I definitely recommend that people go check it out. I enjoyed learning, uh, you know, about the the language itself. And as I said, I marveled at the ability. Now, again, I, I remember the instructors would emphasize, don't try to do it quickly. Try to yeah. do it accurately. But nonetheless, it seemed like it moved very quickly, and that being accustomed to engaging in trades quickly on the floor like that, keeping your head clear, I think, Jonathan probably was good training for you for going on Fox News and everywhere else oh, yeah. and, and making your points quickly yeah. and succinctly and moving on, yes? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, people want to communicate with others who are easy to understand, who can explain concepts well, so, and also in who they can trust. You know, we often talk about honesty, integrity as objectivist virtues, and although there weren't a lot of explicit philosophers on the floor you saw it play out in real life because if someone was known for backing out on trades, if someone was known not to honor the trades that they made, keep in mind, you're flicking your wrist yeah, and you're a making bit. a bet with somebody that's $100,000 in value. And that you could easily just say, oh, no, I never made that trade. But once you did that, once you welched on a trade, no mm-hmm. one would ever trade with you again. So, I mean, it, you saw in real life the principles, so many objectivist principles play out that, you know, uh, I, I, it is not in your best interest. It's not in your vested self-interest to be dishonest in the marketplace, whether it's right. on the floor of the exchange or anywhere else. Right. Excellent. Now, again, you've listened to Jonathan Honig. He is a successful hedge fund manager at CapitalistPig.com. He obviously has vast experience trading in the real world, as, as evidenced by our conversation today. In addition, you can hear him on Fox News regularly, particularly cashing in on the weekends. And uh, tell them again, it's pittrading101.com where they can get this documentary and learn about this physical method of trade that kept us going in the age before computers, yes? Well, thank, thank you both so much. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm fans of your shows, so I pre- appreciate and, and uh and a regular listener and chat room participant. So I appreciate um, you focusing on the film quite a bit. It's, a, it's on iTunes, Vimeo, and Amazon. And uh, if you like it, tell a friend. Yeah, we, we, we got it through, through iTunes. Definitely yeah. enjoyed it. I was, was going to ask you one question. Can I ask you a financial sure. market question? Because it's all over the headlines right now. This Bitcoin thing. Now, you haven't invested in Bitcoin, right? Oh, I own one Bitcoin. You own well. You got to own one, okay? So that's for fun, right? Uh, did you have it from this Mount Gox exchange or whatever that has now f- is filing for bankruptcy protection? No, you know, I I was never uh, I never really participated in Bit- have participated in Bitcoin. I mean, I it's something that I've followed and I have a an interest in, but um, you know, to paraphrase that a Gordon Gecko's line from Wall Street. I look at 100 deals a day and I choose one. You know, I try to really focus on my sphere of competency and, and what I, the markets that I know and the trades that I'm comfortable in making. So, um, you, know, and it, you know, trading and speculation is very self-interested, right? When you come right down to it, it's your money that you've got to put on the line. So I, I never really felt, have felt comfortable and confident in investing in Bitcoin. So um, I, I was unaffected by, by Mt. Gox's demise. Do you think that your reluctance was sort of proven to have merit in effect by the recent news about Bitcoin, the fraud in the market and the collapse, et cetera? Well, honestly, Amy, I think the story is still being written. I mean, I even think back to the mid-90s 
back to the mid-90s, you know, um, Internet stocks had a huge run-up back in probably 95, 96. Then they collapsed, and everyone said, oh, it was just a fad. You know, this will never happen. So, um, you know, I, I, it, I, don't, I don't think Bitcoin is dead, but for me at least, you know, I, I'd much rather be long Egyptian stocks than a lot of Bitcoin right now for, for my investors. You know, I've I've been reading that lately, the, the different comments that you've made about Egypt is the way to go, and it's because they have rejected the government, I guess, that Obama yeah. wanted for them. Is that the idea? Well, you know, I, I joke sometimes, Amy, that investing is like working for the mob. You don't want to ask too many questions. Okay, uh, okay. Often, often, oftentimes mar- markets, um, you know, they move in advance of the news rather than, um, rather than reflect the news. But, mm. you know, one of the things we're doing at CapitalistBig.com is having some success in, in Egyptian stocks. You know, um, you know, they've been on a tear not just since the mm. government was overthrown, but, you know, as they've sought to ban, ironically, I guess, maybe not ironically, they, the more they've sought to ban the Muslim Brotherhood from the country, the higher and the higher the stock market is going up there. So um, Imagine, my, you know, I, my, I, I could never, I could never <laughs> see a cause and effect relationship. I mean, come on, <laughs> you know. That's perfect. Um, totalitarian, no, I, you know, totalitarian religion yeah, and, uh, you know, pro- productivity. Who, who would guess it's like oil and water, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's – I'm, I'm bullish on anywhere, Amy, that I see reason flourishing or even growing a little bit. Um, even right. look to China in the last two decades, you know, they're, they're not capitalists, but even the small incremental moves right. they've made right. towards right. capitalism have created huge wealth. So. My God, if the Middle East could just, you know, become a tiny bit more individualistic, there's going to be a lot of money and much higher quality of life to come. Absolutely. Right, and then anybody who wants to make money in a market can definitely do so. Jonathan, I just want to let you know, and actually you're probably looking at this over here in the chat room at Blog Talk Radio, that a number of people have said this is a great movie. Uh, State Defiance says that Jonathan does a great job. He's smart, talented, and funny. And then he asks for free advice about (laughs) Apple and Netflix. So, do you feel that the <laughs> do you feel that the compliment was worth uh, giving him a little tip about Apple and Netflix? Well, you know, uh, you know, if, Amy, if you're the Johnny Carson and uh, Bosch is the epic man, I think State Defiance is like the Doc Severinsen of Don't Let It Go Unheard. Uh, you know, Apple and Netflix, wonderful companies, but I, I don't own or I don't follow the stock, and I don't follow the stocks. Okay. Okay, fair enough. But if people do want to ask you for consultation advice, and I, you know, I was kind of rooting around your website the other day, and I remember reading that in order to invest in your hedge fund, you have to commit a certain amount, which is more than my budget, I'm afraid to say. Otherwise, I'd come on in. But people who <laughs> don't necessarily have that much to invest can hire you for a consultation, right? Yes. I mean, uh, uh, I, I, I'm an unreg supposedly unregulated hedge fund that actually operates under very strict regulations from the government. That's one of the reasons that our minimum has to be as high as it is, uh, which is 150000 But indeed, I've got a lot of services and I think some pretty unusual products on my website as well, So, including the films. So it's all at capitalistaid.com. Okay, great. Thanks very much, Jonathan, and we look forward to Thanks, seeing Jonathan. your comments here in the chat room. Take care. My Thank pleasure, you. guys. Thank you so much, and, and keep uh, keep up all your great work. We you shall. You too. Thanks, Jonathan. Take okay. care. Be well. Yeah. Great. That was Jonathan Honig. He is, again, hedge fund manager at capitalistpig.com, as well as a Fox News contributor. 
And it is the top of the hour. You're listening to Don't Let It Go Unheard. This is Amy Peekoff. We've got cartoonist Bosch Faustin here. And since it is the top of the hour, you can see, if you go to don'tletitgo.com, where I've listed all the program notes for today, I cleverly put in there, right after the interview material for Jonathan, I had the little Bitcoin question that I planned to ask him because I figured he's the dude. Uh, We have a story that concerns indirectly Chris Christie. Guess what that means? Do you have any chocolate? Yeah. Are, are you sitting down on the job? Yeah. <laughs> it might be time to have yeah. a little bit of chocolate while we talk about something that I think is kind of disappointing, which is Senator Ted Cruz defending Chris Christie from the lane closure criticism. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. I just wish that he would just focus oh. on the stuff that he's really good. Yeah, we've got the, the wrapper. You can hear the chocolate wrapper going. Oh, you've got the sugar-filled stuff here. Oh, yeah. Okay, here we go. This is the uh, Ghirardelli Sea Salt Soiree variety. <clears throat> a little bit more sugary than the Lint 85% well, more, that we normally it's, do. It's more in sync with Chris Christie, don't mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Daniel in the chat room says, yes, I'm chewing on purpose. <laughs> Daniel in the chat room says that he's got Girl Scout cookies here just in case Chris Christie came out. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. Nice. I. Mm. I made a drawing once a while ago. Uh, it was Chris Christie on one side and uh, Ted Cruz on the other, and I put heavyweight and slash. Heavyweight slash. Fighter. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Ted Cruz, as I wrote, I said, Ted Cruz defends Chris Christie on fridge, um, Bridgegate by saying the media is just piling on. I said, well, something's got to be there to be piled onto. I mean, there's something there. He's up to no good. He did something. And Cruz's dismissal, of the fact that Christie was up no good, it just it, you know it sounds so partisan hackery. I mean, it just sounds like I don't I don't know why he's doing it. People people are suggesting well maybe it's a shrewd move on his part politically speaking. I don't know why he would do it. Cruz, I, I never, Chris, Christie has never said anything I think kind about Cruz at all, as far as I know, on record. No, I, I dare him to return the favor now. Yeah, this is what Cruz says. Quote. I think the whole Fridgegate thing is not, oh, sorry, Bridgegate thing (laughs) is nonsense. (laughs) That was Bosch's, but I stole it, Uh, that Cruz said at a political breakfast in Washington. He said, quote, I think it is an example of the media piling on. Apparently, the most important story in the country is that there was some traffic in New Jersey, end quote. Okay, Ted Cruz, I mean, I had to to write a comment on his Facebook earlier this week because... He was saying some stuff about homosexual marriage. I think the – was it the law in New Jersey? I mean, the law in Arizona? Mm-hmm. No, no, it was about a ruling. It was a ruling. No, it was a, it was a court ruling about okay, something with the Texas – oh, yeah, I know what it was. It was a federal court ruling that said that the Texas law defining marriage between a man and a woman – is struck down as unconstitutional. And Cruz says, oh, it's just activist, and you know they should support the fact that states can define marriage, and this was a referendum by people. So basically he was saying democracy yep. trumps yes. the right of two adult human beings who love each other to marry. And I just, I, just don't like, I just don't like when he does this. So, so he, said, he said this is an example. So it, it was something like, you know, a whore, uh, a disappointing display of judicial activism. Right. And, I, and I responded, this is a disappointing <laughs> display of a, you know, affinity for democracy yes. trumping the rights of individuals, yes. you know. And I believe that marriage should be between two people. They should be adults. 
They shouldn't be blood relatives of a certain degree, you know, whatever. But I don't care. You know, again, it all depends on what you think of homosexuality. Homosexuality, I believe, is something that is set very early on in a person's life, if not they were born with it, in a way such that it's not something you're going to, quote, cure. This is something about who the person is, and you need to... I think support everyone's Except. every everyone's ability to engage in value, you know, valuable monogamous relationships where they share values with and, other adults. And to try to, to deny them that for your own personal religious reasons, I mean, it's just it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Is so it, I just is, I just are, are I just wish he'd stay off not? that, and I wish he would yeah. not. You know, so so. To me, this is an example of uh, that he's a politician. Yeah, and, that's what it is. And, and here I'd like to say to Ted Cruz, it's not that the most important story is that there was some traffic in New oh. Jersey. It is that perhaps a governor has used his power to engage in vindictive behavior solely for you know political vindictiveness, and he's going to destroy hours of people's lives yep. with which they could either be productive or enjoy the company of their friends, family, loved ones. Yep. And that's ripped away from them because some politician wanted to get revenge for the fact that somebody didn't support him in an election. That's insane. And if Cruz is fine with that, uh, that's a big problem. Yeah. It's a big problem because he can't see the uh, evil of it. It's like, what the hell is this? And or just because he's a Republican. And he, maybe Cruz is thinking, well, everyone's been, been piling on. Let me uh, be a little helpful to him and let's see what comes out of that. It's pathetic. He's still the best we've got, but come on, Cruz. Yeah, so I I don't think that he needs to go out on a limb and I mean there it is true that I think probably some of the media blows it up a little bit just because the guy has an R next to his name, not yeah. that he's a real Republican sure, sure. anyway. Oh no no, but, no no doubt about it. If it was Democrat, it wouldn't be a news story. We know that. But, but this, the fact is, he was he was up to no good. It's it, it's a real thing, and and to you know oh it's just some traffic. Oh, man, that's, I, I, that's a euphemism. Those of us who live in areas where there is a lot of traffic, mm. we take that seriously. The amount of your life that is destroyed Absolutely. by just sitting in traffic. And then if you know that this was a politician-created traffic yeah. jam, I mean, that is, he has to pay a price for it. And, and he is paying a price for it. And, and also, the old day, out of here at Christie, now he's coming back out again like a brash guy. He goes, uh, I'm, I'm getting tired of this. Oh, really? Because what? Because your presidential hopes are diminishing? That's why you're getting tired of it? You got to pay a price for this, and if that means that you can't become president, good for the country. Good. Tom in the chat room says, "Why does it matter what anyone thinks marriage should be? Just get the state out of it. Problem solved." Yeah. And I think, I think yeah, Tom, that is line, yeah. that is probably the best option. The only thing that I wonder is if there are certain things with regard to inheritance and other things like that that the there might could... be some very minimal involvement in the state but that it would be such that all you would do is as long as it's two consenting adults yes that would be enough but and you can't have you know yeah a, an adult and a child <laughs> it's like this and, though it's, no, but it's like uh mark levin the old day was talking about uh gay marriage he really talks about it really if not ever talks about it he did talk about it for like two hours and he was getting very impassioned right and at one point he says, well, he was using an example about um, incest and, and about children and stuff, and he got called on it. He goes, I never said that. Well, he did say that, and he was trying to make yeah. an example. Now, he, I guess he could have said, well, I, I don't mean that exactly, but the point is this. We're talking about consensual adults. We're talking about adults, 
human beings of the same sex. We're not talking about a kid. We're not talking about an animal. We're not talking about a chair. We're talking about two human beings. It's a big difference. And if you can't make the argument against that and you've got to bring in the old things, then you have no real argument, except it's a, it's a religious-based argument. And that's the bottom line. I think Levin brought up a number of times. Well, it has to do with religion, someone's personal religion. I mean, you get offended. It is we we live right. in a free country. I mean, I, I agree again with the right of any business owner to refuse service Absolute. to if they want homosexuals. A guy does not have to bake a cake for a homosexual couple if he doesn't want to. Whatever. It doesn't. Yeah. I mean, if, 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 if again, if there's a Muslim who comes up to me, I want you to make a heroic drawing of Yasser Arafat. Absolutely not. Another guy asked me to make something that I want to do that that, that, I, that I endorse. I said, well, I'm a little too busy. I have the right to to reject both. Right. Absolutely. Right. And yeah. I, I think that that should be true. But by the same token, I would say now in terms of, uh, Tom, just to give you an indication where the state might properly be involved, things like defaults for inheritance, right? Uh, also, things like who would have the right to make judgment calls about keeping someone on life support, no. other things. And I think it would have to be only one other adult. That's why you're not going to have menage a trois marriages mm-hmm. or any of this right. stuff, uh, you know, you would have to have one person who by legal default would have the option. So this is, the, there's very, very minimal things where I think having something registered with the state at least is a good thing. One thing also, when the, the religious right try to make the argument against gay marriage, they almost always, always compare the gay marriage to something obscene. Uh, betraying what they actually think about it. And that's fine. They, they could think it's obscene, but it's not their right to stop that from happening because they, they find it distasteful. Yeah, I think, again, part of the problem today is because so many benefits that, for instance, employers are forced to give their employees hinge on having a status as being a married couple such that some employers would be required to give benefits to employees and their spouses, whether... Mm homosexual or heterosexual spouses, um, I I think that that's part of the big problem right now. We need to get all of that out. We need to get rid of this government regulation. So, you know, I think a lot of these questions get mixed up because we're in a mixed economy. The mixed economy mixes up the ability to clearly analyze so many of these questions as well. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and go on. You know, here's something... You know, I'm never the kind of person, I'm, I think I'm just a very soft-hearted person. I'm not the kind of person who gets happy about even yucky people getting sick. You mean sick. like this pig? Yeah, we're looking at a picture of Hillary Clinton right now. Whispers persist. You mean, you mean the woman who makes me sick? You're, you, you, you have something for her? Cause she's I, should, I should be happy, right? This is a woman who helped with the Benghazi thing that let four Americans also, die. Also she defaulted in her She's pushing socialized medicine. You know, she's a, she's a rat. She, she's up to no good. She wants full power. And uh, if whatever stops her, whether it's her health, whether it's her ambitions, good. We want her out. It doesn't matter. Says whispers persist that Hillary won't run. Health may be worse than disclosed. This is a story from the Daily Caller that I've linked to at my blog, don'tletitgo.com. It says, if you listen to the chattering class in Washington, D.C., Hillary Clinton is a virtual certainty for the 2016 Democratic nomination and the frontrunner in the next presidential race. But in private, rumors persist that the former Secretary of State may not even be capable of making it to Iowa and New Hampshire. Clinton, these skeptics often say, will not run for president again because of health concerns. 
supermarket tabloids are apparently part part of this. They talk about the Enquirer and the Globe. One thing also, uh, the um, the imbecile um, vice president of ours is still threatening to run. He doesn't care if if it's if Hillary's the given. So maybe things like that help her also. You know, I mean, if l- l- let's say she is sick. I mean, she looks sick. She always looks sick, even if she's healthy. But what I'm saying is, uh, she'll get some challenges. And maybe she's not. Maybe she thought, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to walk into this. I'm not supposed to fight while I'm sick. What the hell is this? Joe Biden, joke Biden, and the others are, are, are going to try to take this thing that is entitled to me. You know? Oh yeah. Because she course. thinks she's entitled to be president. That's this is her time, really her time now. That upstart took it away from her last time. Her spokesman Nick Merrill apparently says that she's 100 percent, but the article says that the rumors suggesting otherwise date back to the end of 2012 when Clinton's health made headlines as she finished her term as Secretary of State, aides explained that she had developed a stomach virus, hit her head, suffered a concussion, and subsequently developed a blood clot in her brain, but was being medicated and expected to recover. Skeptics say that there's much more to the story. Uh, There was even a rumor, apparently, that she uh, had brain cancer, some sort of a brain tumor, which would be Interesting. I mean, the thing that she does not have on her side, and we actually know someone who right now is fighting a brain cancer, and luckily for him, he has a wife who has a degree in some sort of a biological science such that she's able to comb through all of the latest research and all of the blogs of people detailing their battles with brain cancer and trying non-traditional treatments because apparently if you just go for the normal chemo and radiation, you've got very little time and very little quality of life because the radiation, I guess, shrinks your brain. And what does our quality of life come from? It comes mostly from from our brains. So what does Hillary have? Hillary has a husband who's womanizing flirting. You think he's got time to spend 10 hours a day combing through the latest medical research like our friend's Absolutely wife not. does? He's busy doing no. you know what across yeah. the world, across the globe. So. But we know for sure that they, they had sex once, uh, the uh, Clintons, because the daughter <laughs> looks like them. So we know for sure that. <laughs> she, she definitely looks like, I forget what, was, <laughs> Tammy had the funniest expression the other day on her show. And it was the, a face that looks like it was made by committee. Oh. So that the it doesn't look like a, a has as it has its own identity. Yeah. It's more of an amalgam, and and, and Chelsea's face definitely looks absolutely. like an amalgam and, and of the could two. Could you see yeah. Hillary Clinton's motherly? No, they said, look, we need to really prove that we are a family to some extent because you want to be president, we, I want to be president. So let's just we got to do this. We have to create this thing that people accept as a family. So let's do it. And that's why <laughs> there's no love there. They you know they hold each other in contempt. I mean. I don't know. I, I still feel bad for anybody who yes, is suffering yes. like this, but, but I would is, be happy imagine, to not have her in the race. Imagine a President Hillary Clinton. She'd make us suffer. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's better for her to suffer and walk away than for the entire country to suffer. I hope. Here's my hope. My hope is that she can't run for whatever reason, mm-hmm. but that she can have a nice quality of life, but that her doctor says that in order to have that quality of life, you, can't, you, you have to get out of public life. Get away so, from America. You know, now. Go, go to Hawaii, hang out with the Obamas no, in no, Hawaii. No, no, go to Benghazi and have a place there. Uh, just, you know, get, get some guards. Make sure, you know, unlike uh, Ambassador Stevens, make sure you have guards and just, just stay there. 72521 says that uh, he doesn't feel bad about talking about Hillary. No, I don't know. 
next time talk about Hillary before you tempt her to eat something, <laughs> not right. after. That's right. That's right. No, she's uh, she is disgusting. Uh, she's a power hungry uh, person who's really never achieved anything. People say, oh, she was a great, great secretary of state. Why? She was a great senator. Why? A great first lady. Why? She was the most political first lady probably in history before uh, Michelle Obama. She had her own office in there. People found that strange. Hillary Care, what the hell is that? A first lady with a health care bill named after her? What does that mean? I mean, what does that mean? That should never have, have happened. I'm glad it was shot down. But that just sounds so like, like a dictatorship, like a banana republic. You know, the president's wife will have a health care um, bill. It's like, how is it possible? What position does she have officially? Nothing. Right, right. No, nothing at all. And, you know, it's the same thing with Michelle now. Yeah, yeah she, she's making around. rules in public schools. How's that possible? Yeah. The, health I mean, care, the healthcare thing is a lot more serious. She's supposed to be a figurehead. She's not supposed to be yeah. actual, you know, political power of, an, of any kind. Bosh, you sent me this story yeah. earlier today, and this is from... Uh, Mark Levin was, 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 was talking about it. Okay. Yeah. Um, this is from the Wall Street Journal, and it is an excellent little summary yeah. of... Connecting the dots in the IRS scandal. Uh, you know, the idea is that the media is not covering the IRS's targeting of conservative and Tea Party groups because there's no quote unquote smoking gun. And Bradley Smith for the Wall Street Journal says that is a bunch of garbage. And Wall Street Journal is very good when you have uh, independent uh, writers come in, do, do, do a column and leave. Because their 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 crew pretty much stinks, but this guy's pretty good. There's some that are more regular there yeah. who have done a good job. One, uh, uh, Brett Stevens has moments, uh, some other guys, but overall uh, on these issues, on Islam and stuff, they stink. There was a woman, and I can't remember her name right now, and I was looking oh, at some uh, of her um, columns for a number of times. Kathleen, something uh, the, with the hit piece on Ted Cruz, she no, stinks no, no. also. No, no, uh, no. Peggy Noonan sucks. Okay. I mean, but is Strassel the one who did some yes. good stuff on no. the IRS? Well, well Strassel is the one who went after Ted Cruz, so whatever value she has, okay. ultimately she doesn't. But also Peggy Noonan, for the record, every time someone quote, quotes her, it's like, Peggy Noonan, she was a pro-Obama 2008. Yeah. She was an older no, lady who fell for him. How the hell can you do that? But I th isn't it Strassel who had done some nice work on Possibly, the IRS? But I just know Strassel the... as the uh, hit piece on Cruz. And that's all I got to know about Strassel now. You want to put readers so you can get past the... Uh, Oh, if I hit yeah. reader, it's going to get past the ads yeah. and, and make my life yeah. nice. Oh, that's pr that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Teaching me new yeah, features yeah, yeah. of my computer that I do not use regularly. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Bosch. Yeah. So uh, with this one here, the background is, of course, the 2010 Supreme Court ruling in Citizens United versus the FEC, which upheld the right of corporations and unions to make independent expenditures in political races. Which should be the right, should be given. Yeah, so 501c4 groups could go ahead and do this. All they have to do to retain their 501c4 status is have more than 50% of their activity be non-political. And in fact, I'm kind of toying with the idea of having some 501c4 privacy-related group myself. So I'm going to start getting into this. It's going to be start becoming pertinent to uh, my personal life. But they're able to lobby, apparently. They, they don't have to disclose who their donors are. Etc. So this is actually kind of cool. Now they say consider the following events, all of which were yeah. either widely reported, publicly released by office holders, or revealed later in testimony to Congress. These are the dots that Bradley Smith says the media is refusing to connect. First of all, January 27, 2010, we all saw this. President Obama criticized yeah. 
Citizens United criticized a Supreme Court ruling yep. in his State of the Union address mm-hmm. while Supreme Court justices are sitting right there in the audience. Yep. And he asked Congress to, quote, correct the decision. Yep. February 2010, Senator Chuck Schumer, wonderful guy. Chuck Schumer. Yeah. He says he'll introduce legislation known as the Disclose Act to place new restrictions on some political activity by corporations, force more public disclosure, right? So he's just taking up the president on his invitation. He says the bill is intended to, quote, embarrass companies out of exercising the right recognized in Citizens United. Deterrent effects should not be underestimated. Soon after, in March 2010, Mr. Obama publicly criticized conservative 501c4 organizations engaging in politics. August 21st radio address warns Americans about, quote, shadowy groups with harmless sounding names, end quote, and a, quote, corporate takeover of our democracy, end quote. September 2010, Obama publicly accuses conservative 501c4 organizations of, quote, posing as not-for-profit social welfare and trade groups, end quote. Max Baucus, then the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, asks the IRS to investigate 501c4s, specifically citing Americans for Job Security, an advocacy group that says its role is to, quote, put forth a pro-growth, pro-jobs message to the American people, end quote. Sounds like a more conservative group to me, cited specifically by Max Baucus, asking the IRS to investigate. October 2010, Senator Dick Durbin asked the IRS to investigate the conservative 501c4 Crossroads GPS and, quote, other organizations. April 2011, White House officials confirmed that Mr. Obama is considering an executive order that would require all government contractors to disclose their donations to politically active organizations as part of their bids for government work. See, it's always those strings attached. We're going to give you the contract. We're going to require you to disclose stuff. Proposal was later dropped amid opposition across the political spectrum. February 2012, seven Democratic senators listed in the article write to the IRS asking for an investigation of conservative 501c4 organization. March 2012, the same seven Democrats write another letter asking for further investigations of their tax status. that they were maybe abusing their tax status. July 2012, Senator Carl Levin, Democratic from Michigan, writes one of several letters to then-IRS Commissioner Douglas Shulman seeking a probe of nine conservative groups plus two liberal and one centrist organization. In 2013 testimony to the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee, Former IRS Acting Commissioner Stephen Miller describes Senator Levin as complaining, quote, bitterly. Levin. Oh, Levin, sorry, okay. to the IRS. So I always think Levin because of, yes. Levin the rat, Levin good. Okay. Yeah. I, I will uh, keep definitely that in mind. Then uh, in August 2012, in another letter to the IRS, Levin calls its failure to investigate and prosecute targeted organizations, quote, unacceptable. December 2012, liberal media outlet ProPublica receives Crossroad GPS's 2010 application for tax-exempt status from the IRS. Mm-hmm. Because the group's tax-exempt status has not been, had not been recognized, the application was confidential. ProPublica publishes the full application, nonetheless. Mm-hmm. 
It later reports that it received nine confidential pending applications from IRS agents, six of which it published. Oh, how nice of it not to publish all of them, right? None of the applications was from a left-leaning organization. How convenient. Mm. April 2013, a senator convenes the Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime and Terrorism to examine nonprofits alleges that nonprofits are violating federal law by making false statements about their political activities and donors and using shell companies to donate to super PACs to hide donors' identities. Then he berates the then Deputy Chief of Criminal Investigation for the IRS for not prosecuting conservative nonprofits. May 2013, Senator Levin announces that the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations will hold hearings on the IRS's failure to enforce the law requiring that tax-exempt 501c4s be engaged exclusively in social welfare activities, not partisan politics, end quote. Three days later, he postpones the hearings when Lois Lerner reveals that the IRS had been targeting and delaying applications of conservative groups. Again, if I apply, what are they going to do with mine? Who knows? November 2013, IRS proposes new rules defining, redefining political activity to include activities such as voter registration drives. Acorn's famous for that too, right? And production of nonpartisan legislative scorecards to restrict what the agency deems as excessive spending on campaigns by tax-exempt 501c4 groups. Even many liberal nonprofits argue that the rule goes too far in limiting their political activity, but the main target appears to be the conservative 501c4s. February 2014, the Hill newspaper reports that Senate Democrats facing tough elections this year want the IRS to play a more aggressive role in regulating outside groups. These are all of a huge list of governmental activities. We've got senators, we've got people within government, all encouraging the IRS to pressure on conservative 501c4 groups. And again, go back to the connection with free speech. You might think, oh, well, they can still speak. It's just the tax-exempt status that's being questioned here. And today, they can't organize. They can't help. There is no way that conservative groups can compete with liberal groups unless they can also get the same tax-exempt status that the liberal groups enjoy. Today, free speech is controlled in part by whether or not you get tax-exempt status, especially in an economy like today where we are being taxed so much. Um, and, you know, they they helped suppress the vote in 2012, and we had a stinking candidate, you know, Mitt Romney care, but still, uh, they hurt uh, the right, and it worked. I mean, it definitely worked, because they couldn't have the kind of uh, rallies that they intended to have. They couldn't do that, because they couldn't get organized. Right. And, you know, I, I forgot what the number was. It was so many, hundreds, if not a thousand groups, and a lot of them innocently probably thought, well, that's just, just the, w- the way the government is. No. It was a concerted effort to stop the vote and to try to get Obama reluctant, no matter what he was doing, no matter what he was up to. And it appears to have worked, which it is the, the, the horrible thing. So what um, you know, Smith is doing here in this Wall Street Journal column is he's drawing a parallel between there's Obama at his State of the Union address in 2010 yep. criticizing Citizens United decision right there in front of the Supreme Court justice calling 
out there for everyone to see calling for Congress to do something about it, and then all these things were done. It's a great connection. He's drawing, yeah, he's drawing a parallel between this and in 1170, King Henry II of England is said to have cried out, writes Smith, on hearing the latest actions of the Archbishop of Canterbury. This is what King Henry said. He said, quote, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest, end quote. And then four nights murdered the archbishop. Is anybody surprised? No. No. Uh, Obama sent that out to the State of the Union, 2010. He goes, this is no good. Guys, do you hear me? Yeah. Telling the media, telling the the left, telling everyone, we've got to stop this, make sure we do. Because in two years, I've got to win again. You know that, right? And, you know, we've talked about this a little bit in the past as well in terms of people who are career working for the IRS. You know, you can understand mm-hmm. people who work for the IRS for a short period of time in order to understand the way that it works. And then they're later going to be, go become CPAs, you know, people who will help Americans do their bureaucracy. taxes. Right, right, right. The entrenched leftist bureaucracy. That's when they... To be able to work there for years and years and, in effect help the government fleece Americans. They have to believe in what they're doing. Otherwise, what, they're just going to commit suicide or something. So they must believe that they're doing something good or noble. They're already on the side against these conservative and particularly against these Tea Party groups who believe in drastically rolling back the size and scope of government and therefore perhaps even a lot of them believe in eliminating the IRS and putting taxes back on a postcard, et cetera, which I think is a very noble, noble pursuit. Again, mm-hmm. having recently done my taxes, I was complaining about that last week. So um, Steve in the chat room over here at Blog Talk Radio says that he went to a 912 group meeting on Tuesday, and this bill and its effects on the group was discussed. Until February 27th, uh, you could comment on the proposed bill, which he did. Now, what is the proposed bill? Um, the proposed bill to go ahead and further restrict yeah. their activity, the one that is talked about. Not, not only were they caught, here. not only is it, is it almost a fact that we know that Obama and his whole gang did it, but they want to double down now and say, you know, Obama tells O'Reilly he, there, there was not a smidgen of corruption with the IRS. And I, 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 now I can't watch O'Reilly. I can't watch Obama. Both of them are, you know, I mean, insufferable. But. O'Reilly probably didn't challenge him. This is just, just my assumption. When he said that, he probably didn't challenge him. He, he's probably so taken aback, like, oh, my God, the, uh, the abrasiveness of this, of this guy, you know? Um, Joel here in the chat room says that I'm right about Strassel, that she was yeah. both the one who was writing about the IRS scandal, and I believe she did it repeatedly and very effectively. But he says that she also wrote yeah. about how the Tea Partiers are idiots for going after establishment <sighs> Republicans. How can you have one and the other? I don't understand. You could put those two together. She's not thinking. Steve, you know, Steve says that the 912 group uh, with whom he was meeting the other day does not seem daunted yeah. from right. commenting on the proposed bill, et cetera, what, just putting themselves out there. Right. They say, as liberty is more important than any tax breaks. That's true. And it's true that so many people in these groups are going to continue on. It's not like they're going to stop, but they're going to have fewer resources with mm-hmm. which to do their work because what would happen is they would lose their 501c4 status. The donations would yep. no longer be tax deductible. And so there's just going to be less money No, they're being, they're being crippled. Because yeah. uh, they know that uh, they pose a serious threat to the statists in power. And, well, uh, and, and the other thing that happens, too, I think if they lose their status, I think there's one of two things that can happen. Like the donations are no longer deductible, mm-hmm. or maybe they'd have to choose not to engage in those activities, or 
maybe their donors, their list of donors is Would revealed. Be, right. And who and don't want to be revealed. They don't thing. necessarily want to be revealed. So there's a lot of bad consequences no, this is, that can this happen. Is, uh, it's shock. It's, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I still get shocked. This is America. This is where we are. Right. The government, the full out attack against uh, the American people, because Tea Party, people, Tea Party, Tea Party is the American people. It is the American people who've gone, who've gotten organized, who are fed up. I mean, who are outraged at what's going on, and this is the result of that. And they're like, they want to clamp down on the American people. They can call it Tea Party all they want, and it is technically Tea Party, yeah, but this is the American people lashing back. Steve says that people at the group joke that they would reform the group as a union, <laughs> which is exempt from these restrictions. And the only problem is, is that the union, usually unions, I don't know what the restrictions would be on forming a union, but usually unions that I've seen are formed around a certain profession. And people right. who are in the Tea Party are from a huge, yeah. wide range of professions. Across the country, yeah. So I don't know exactly how you would do it, but it would, it would be awesome. Uh, the revealing of donors, maybe, he says, maybe, is becoming a big issue. It really and, is. And it was called the American Union, you know, because we're, you know, we're all <laughs> Americans, right? The old ones are the other unions are the anti-American unions. So you know what? Okay, I got it. I got it. We can do it, Steve. We can have our union, and this is what all of us, as Americans who unfortunately pay our taxes, have in common. I forget when the first tax-free day is of the year, but it turns out that I think up until April or May. Every single day that you work is working for the government, right? Depending on, mm-hmm. yeah. And they talk about when, when's your first tax-free day where you're actually starting to earn money for mm-hmm. yourself versus for paying your taxes. And they keep changing what that day is each year depending on the tax burden. But I, I would say, hey, we are all, you know, American taxpayers, that, that our profession basically is to be slaves for the government. Mm-hmm. And that's my union. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a union. <laughs> That we're government basically slave. government slave union, the government slave union, <laughs> right? And uh, we got it. Boom, government slave union. The we government, yeah. So, so I mean, we're all part of it. We can't deny it, so we have to accept it and call it that. And you know, they'd like that even worse, even less. You know, again, I, I'm I'm happy, Steve, to hear that people are very determined. No, but I hate the, the idea that they're going to have course. to operate with a smaller amount of resources because the Democrats, but, as Joel is talking about here in the chat room, the Democrats do not. But think about Play it. fair, they the do government, not the government respect wants, reality. Wants the Tea Party to submit, they want them out of the way, and they're not. They celebrated, you know, we celebrated five years yesterday, five years of, of the Tea Party, the first rally that came at the tail end of the Bush administration and the beginning of Obama. Uh, we're here to stay, and uh, they they are they can't quite believe. It. I think they thought they would have buried us by now. You know, I'm I'm going to try to turn this around a little and draw a little bit of good news out of the fact that these guys are so desperately trying to get the IRS to go after the 501c4s. And you know what it is? Hmm. They know that their ideology, that the program that they are trying to institute in America based on their horrible egalitarian ideology, that it is intellectually bankrupt, that there is nothing to speak for it, that it's showing itself to be a plague on the entire nation, that it's an enemy of human life and progress. Which is why the jackboots are out. Right. Because they can't argue. they, They are desperate. It is the whole uh, you know, fallacy of argumentum ad baculum, which is the appeal to force. Ad baculum means appeal to the walking stick because when they used to be the parap- you know, uh, peripatetic 
philosophers where they used um, to walk and talk. Yeah. Plato and Aristotle, it was, you know, if you were really desperate and you no longer had an argument, <laughs> you'd pull out your walking stick as you were walking right. around and you'd hit the other guy over the head because you had nothing. And Which this is what is they're saying. Which they is what they're doing. Have no, they, they are admitting. Right. They are admitting defeat in terms of their arguments. They have no argument. And they that's are, they important are afraid. To know. No, that's important to know. Yeah. It's, it's even important to write a little piece about it, just a small little piece about it, just to show it in action, because this is exactly what it is. They're terrified. They're like, we have no argument. Nothing. Uh, so let's just try to outlaw them. I mean, literally outlaw them. Walter in the chat room is saying that tax-free day is expected to be April 18 this year, but that is only for federal taxes, right? So if you add state onto it, depending on which right. state you live in, it could be later. So I would say that all of us have enough in common to make a union if we just say, look, we're government slaves mm-hmm. for a huge portion of the year, and our professions, therefore, you know, don't really matter. It's, it's the identity as the government slave that unites us all. Uh, Daniel in the chat room says that he is seriously considering lending his web development time to making the official website for the government slave union. I don't know. Is, is, <laughs> is, is, GovernmentSlaveUnion.org. So, true. Daniel, you want to go find out if that URL is grabbed yet? I can, I can make a graphic for it. You, you can go grab it. I can make now, a there is the National Taxpayers Union, Craig points out, so that's NTU.org. And perhaps that would be a good place for us all to go spend our time. If it is truly a union and it's governed by more lax union rules, yeah. that would be great. But I'm sure that's what everybody resorts to, that... They'll start clamping down on unions as well, right? Unions are not happy anymore. Unions apparently no, are very no, upset about yeah. the way they were treated with Obamacare. They thought that they had it made in the shade yeah. with Obamacare, and that just and they don't. isn't the case. So, But these were the same rats who supported him up until that point. So to hell with them. Will the mainstream media connect the dots? Not exactly sure. No, no, no. They're, they're here to erase the dots. I mean, that's their job, they think. You know, yeah. they're, they're working, they're beholden to Obama, ideologically speaking, and this is their job. That's what they actually think. We have a couple more stories that talk about the issue of free speech to some extent here. GovernmentSlaveUnion.com.net and .org are all available. <laughs> nice, nice. So, I mean, that's definitely something we're doing. I can make the graphic, uh, we can get it moving. Tell Americans, look. You know, I wonder if that could be integrated with Don Watkins' project about the debt draft. Right, 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 right. right. And that's a little more in-your-face. Government slave union, yeah. I, I like the in-your-face stuff. I, I love it. Legalizedprivacy.org, uh, that's what I'm doing. It, makes, it, yeah. just, it attracts attention, and it's absolutely true. <laughs> Somebody who's, who's motivated should grab those URLs and talk to Daniel here in the chat room if you really want to get going with this, because I think that would, that would be awesome. And then hire me as a speaker. I'll come and yes. speak at the events for the Government Slave Union. Yes. That would be a lot of fun. So a couple more things on free speech here. One is that a court has ruled that schools can ban the U.S. flag shirts, a shirt where you wear an American flag, to, quote, avoid violence. This is a story from The Blaze. San Francisco AP says that officials at a Northern California high school acted appropriately when they ordered students wearing American flag t-shirts to turn the garments inside out during the Mexican independence celebration Cinco de Mayo, a federal appeals court ruled Thursday. Ninth Circuit said that the official's concern of racial violence outweighed students' freedom of expression rights. 
Administrators feared that the American flag shirts would inflame the passions of Latino students, etc. So, Meaning Latino students would beat up these Americans? Because they're wearing their American flag. And, and, and their right to do that? To beat up these Americans? Yeah. I mean, and they're trying to stop that from happening? Stories like this keep reminding you that we need to abolish government schools. We need to get rid of government schools where... Who force yeah. these kind of celebrations. That's right. ridiculous. Right. Because if you had a private school... You could yourself decide that there might be a risk of violence on the Cinco de Mayo celebration day, et cetera, whatever. And you might yourself decide to say students cannot wear American flag T-shirts today. You'd be free to do it. But we would also be free not to send kids to a school that would ban the wearing of American shirts. All right. Everybody can make the choice for themselves. You think those schools celebrate American holidays? I I doubt it. I highly doubt it. That government schools yes. celebrate American holidays? Probably it, not and, as and, much and, as and some of the... In any festive way? Yeah. No. no. Not as much as some of the so-called multicultural celebrations. I mean, soon they'll be celebrating Muhammad's birthday. There, there are so many things that are very difficult in the government school context because you're dealing with kids who don't have the same rights as adults. You're dealing with a government school in which the government is going is basically doing something that it shouldn't be doing, offering education. And so, therefore, all the things that you would say, well, government shouldn't be able to restrict free speech and other things like this, you can't exactly say that translates exactly into the school context yeah. because the government is operating as a private organization would trying to accomplish a particular end, namely educating children. Government should not be involved in educating children. And then problems like this would go away. And I'm sure there's people at the blaze who are more than happy to have the quote states continue to educate our kids. But the same sorts of issues come up time after time. And I don't believe in, you know, having whoever's got the loudest voice at the PTA Mm -hmm. say what goes on either. The fact that it's local control doesn't mean that it's any better. You would just have a smaller local government body violating the rights of people. So just more evidence. We need to get government out of schools. We don't need to have Michelle Obama telling us what to eat. We don't need to have government school administrators telling us what to wear, et cetera. One thing about the, the sorry, just, I think this is on track, uh, the uh, Tea Party. Uh, they didn't anticipate this. Uh, the right didn't, the Republicans didn't, and the, and the Democrats didn't. Nobody did, really. This out, this complete across the country, Americans organized, getting together, and and trying to force our government to get back in line. Uh, and I think they're shell-shocked. I, I think they don't know what to do. That's why they're acting so... I mean, they're, they're just... They're acting like criminals. Yep. They are acting like absolute criminals, and they don't care that they are. They're like, well, can we get away with it? Okay, go. Go forward. And uh, we need some more voices out there, not just talk show hosts, not just... We, we need some more Ted Cruz out there uh, telling American people this is unacceptable, this is intolerable. It has to be stopped now. They can't get it with And, and they've got to pay a price for it. Our government has to pay a price for doing this. Has to. This is why whenever Ted Cruz wastes any of Absolutely. his precious airtime on issues like gay marriage, abortion, abortion and Chris defending Christie, Chris Christie. Come on, Chris Ted. I don't, I don't want another piece of chocolate because uh, we've got some stories to do. I don't, know, wanna, you know, I don't want to waste time say, chewing. I don't, let me, I don't. Let me quote Ted Cruz about something, though. One second. Go right ahead. He says something. Oh, no, uh, no. We, I've got it in a okay, minute. Excellent. I want to I finish off with excellent, that one because excellent. we are going to have good news it. at the end of the story. It. So here's one more on free speech. I'll let you do it. You'll let me do it. <laughs> Thank you. Four out of five FCC study authors gave to Obama. Yes. This is a story I'm from... What? I'm shocked. Yeah, a story from the Washington Examiner. You remember... The yeah, plan yeah. 
luckily there was an FCC commissioner who leaked the plan. You mean there was an American the on the board? Yeah, there's an American wow. there. The, the idea that somebody, you know, somebody with the control over free speech is politically run is horrible. But it's, it says, still, it's still a good sign that they couldn't get away with it. They knew they couldn't, though. That's still a good sign. Right. So this Washington Examiner piece that I've linked to at my blog at don'tletitgo.com. Tell them what it is, though. What scroll down do. for the program notes. Yeah. So the FCC, what it planned to do, if you recall, was that they were going to have a government contractor. Spies. Government contractor in every major newsroom around the nation. And the purpose of that government contractor sitting over you and watching you do your work is that they want to make sure that there is enough, what is it, content? Yeah, for the unserved, the underserved. No, but it's it's a, oh, critical information needs. That was the CIN acronym. That that your your critical information needs were being met. So that, you know, the benevolent government contractor is just sitting there just to make sure that Americans' critical information needs are being met by your news broadcast. Meaning they wanted to counter the truth. Just, just, just a study. It's just a study. You shouldn't feel intimidated by the government contractor looking over your shoulder and implicitly pointing a gun at you. Nah, you know. And and I pointed out before that it's a government contractor, which we learned from Edward yes. Snowden means that that person is not covered by the whistleblower yep. protections that Obama likes to brag about so yep. loudly and likes to you know, say, oh, well, why didn't Snowden come back? Mm-hmm. He's you know, protected as a whistleblower. No, he's not, not as a contractor. So I found it very convenient that they were going to appoint contractors. You know? So the contractors were going to question journalists about their editorial decisions and the practices, et cetera. It turns out that this was a totally partisan exercise. According to the Washington Examiner, the plan originated among Democrats on the FCC. The commission's two Republican members didn't even learn about it until it was well underway. The FCC enlisted scholars in order to get this going from two big journalism schools, USC and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And they were supposed to determine, quote, the critical information needs about which journalists would be questioned. The study listed five authors. The study listed five authors. And it turns out of those five authors, four of them contributed to President Obama's campaigns. That's insane. Yes, it is. So here's a study that was going to be done. And again, I don't care if you tell me it's, oh, it's just a study. Mm -hmm. If you have a government guy there, I don't care what his purpose is, you know that every, all of us know, those of us who understand what government is, government is force. Yep. And that was the one thing that I liked about Ron Paul when he was yeah. in the Republican presidential debates for the 2008 yeah, she, election. He kept reminding us yeah. government is force. She made you forget he was wacko when he said that. So, yeah. oh, this guy makes sense yeah. this particular second. And what is government's job with the force that it wields. It is supposed to be protecting us from the initiation of force against us. That's what force is good for. Force is not for going around and telling people how to exercise their right of free speech. If you are using government force in any way in relation to so-called speech, or you know, actual speech, uh, you're not letting them exercise their right to free speech. You're not facilitating it. <laughs> you are hampering it. The only thing that force can do with respect to the exercise of free speech, with the, you know, respect to the uh, engaging in productive activity, the only thing that force can do is stop it. It can prevent it. Force does not aid 
speech. Force does also, not aid product. Force doesn't. Government doesn't create jobs. All government can do is protect people's rights so that they don't have force initiated against them, and otherwise get out of the way. Also, you know, I, I think they wanted to mainly go in talk radio, right wing talk radio offices, sure. Fox News, and some other outlets, and then just say, oh, no, no it's, it's, it's across the world. We're, no, okay, we're going to see an MSN. You know, seriously, look, look around here in our, our little studio. He's right there, the guy. Well, but I mean, where would Hold we on. put him? Where would we put him? If they, if they wanted to send one of these guys, where would we make him sit? Under my boot. Yeah, with his neck. Uh, <laughs> no, if, I mean, if he has to be. No, we, we come up with a really uncomfortable chair. Well, um, you know, uh, yeah. earplugs, uh, like the mask that Batman's mm-hmm. put for the thing, you know what I mean? Um, uh, nose plugs, uh, mouth plug. I mean, just basically. We'd make him eat bacon. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Okay. You know, especially if he's Muslim. <laughs> no, but uh, this is unacceptable. And I'm glad that they still think they can't get away with it at this moment. Now, of course, they'll, they'll, they'll be back. Anyone who thinks otherwise is silly. They'll be back. And they'll try to polish it up a little more. They said, mm, we didn't polish it up enough, guys. Come on. It was too obvious. We, people... we are going to keep watching oh, yeah. this story. Definitely going to keep watching this story. Arshak Benlian and Andrew Bernstein, oh, who have a show here on Blog Talk Radio, apparently had a great episode about good. this critical information needs thing. So 72521 in the chat room over here at Blog Talk Radio recommends Thanks. that you go check that out. Check out Arshak Benlian, B-E-N-L-I-A-N here on Blog Talk Radio if you want to hear more about it. We'll definitely keep watching this story as it develops. What I want to do a little bit before we go is talk about Harry Reid. <laughs> you know, when you have a senator who gets on the floor of the Senate and just tells lie after yep. lie after lie, do you believe you're living in America? Absolutely not. And he knows with, with impunity, does it? I mean, in a way, this where the hell was was uh, Bitch, Bitch McConnell to, to counter it? Say this guy lied. Exactly, he lied. He didn't go out there and say, you know why? Because that, that's his buddy. But instead, the people who are calling our politicians to task are people in the so-called new media. And yeah. here, I got to say, bravo to this guy Benson who compiled this over yes. at HotAir.com. You can find the link again. Go to my blog, don'tletitgo.com, and you'll see the story. The headline is Harry Reid, Liar. And what Harry Reid had said is that all of the people who are complaining that they have been harmed by Obamacare, all of the stories that they have told are untrue. He said all of these stories are untrue. And through his Twitter, Guy Benson put tweet after tweet after tweet with two stories about people being harmed by Obamacare, either because their cancer treatment has been interrupted or stopped yeah. or prevented, hampered in some way, their cancer treatment has been uh, you know, prevented, or because their health insurance premiums have drastically increased. All of these stories where Americans... Real life people, you know, individual people, Harry Reid, like people who Mm -hmm. supposedly you are supposed to care about as a liberal, right? These individual people who are suffering from diseases or because they cannot pay their bills, these people have come forth with their stories. And Harry Reid, our senator, has the effrontery to say that their stories are untrue. Tweet after tweet after tweet with link after link after link to all of the different stories. And Benson is saying, you are calling all of these people liars? Yep. You, Harry Reid, all of these stories are untrue? 
And he keeps quoting. I love these tweets because the format of them is, quote, all of them are untrue, end quote, and then links to Senator Reid because he's the one who said it. And then it gives a link to a supposedly untrue story told by a true, a real American who is suffering from Obamacare. Uh, somebody said recently that uh, one of the either congressmen or senators should introduce a piece of legislation geared only toward renaming the Affordable Care Act Democrat Care. I said it before on the show. You said it oh, before? Yeah. yeah. I said it before. No, but didn't somebody write that in an article recently or something? Anyway, I saw it. I mean, I would, I would just love for Democrats to no, be made to own this. I said that for this entire year, right. uh, it should be referred to as such. As Democrat, Democrat care, care. Democrat care. Democrat care. Democrat care. Because it is a, it's a Democrat bill, a 100% Democrat bill. Not one Republican voted for it except for that hack, that uh, piece of crap, uh, Roberts. And if we had had Mitt Romney as president, I think the chances of ever achieving a full repeal of Obamacare uh-uh. would have gone away. Absolutely right. No so doubt. So as much as I, you know, at the thought at the time, okay, it'd be better if we had Can Romney. Say that Mitt Romney went, went from saying uh, repeal Obamacare to repeal and replace two months after he lost. Well, I would change it. And as I said again, I'll say it again. Yes, he would change it to Romneycare. Joel in the chat room over here at Blog Talk Radio says, why should Harry Reid not lie? No one in the mainstream media will call him on it. He lies because he gets sure. away with it. Sure, no doubt. Yeah, I would like to see someone in the mainstream media linked to this Twitter feed whereby yeah. he goes, story you know, after story, story after story after story. After story. After true story after true kudos, story after true kudos story. Kudos for doing that. I mean, to me, it's just, uh, you know, uh, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, some of the other guys, right? they should have went on the floor of the Senate, called him a liar and prove it, and read those stories again and again on the floor. They, they should have done that, and they didn't. Why? Because Ted Cruz was busy kissing up to, uh, to a Chris Christie. He was busy talking about gay marriage and abortion. Uh, come on, guys. Come on. Get serious. Or maybe did he do it when Ted Cruz and the other good guys were at the fifth anniversary no. of the Tea Party? No. The rap bastard, I think, did it two days ago. That, that was yesterday, the, uh, the fifth anniversary party. Okay. Yesterday, so it was two days ago. They had the time. They could have been busy doing something, but one of them could have went out there went on the floor and told the truth. Well, is there a procedural thing such that the guy who's the head of the Senate can just get up there and blather well, well, and, well, and have nobody get no, more time I after think, him? No, I mean, then that's a d- dictatorship. I mean, if they can't do that, then they're not senators. I don't, know, I don't know what they are. They have the right to go up there and make, and make a speech. I'm just wondering if there's a perk that No, but Reed they can enjoys. say, this guy lied, yeah. and here's the proof. Boom, 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 one after the other. Well, here's something good that Ted Cruz has done. And again, I have no idea whether Ted Cruz could potentially be our next president. He seems still, even though I have a number of things that point me about him, he seems still to be the best of the bunch out there. The most most principled. And here is a piece. This is a piece from Washington Times, and it's just published today, Friday, February 28th. Headline, Ted Cruz vows to, quote, repeal every single word of Obamacare, end quote. Let me say, whether that can happen or not, okay, and I hope we can, to say that is important. To keep to saying keep it. To keep saying it, because he's been saying it for the last year or two. He, it's important that we hear that, because of course we could repeal it. 100% we could repeal all these horrific laws if we get together and actually do it. I mean, we can do it if we have good, good people in power. So it's important that he says it, and uh, that's how it starts. You start saying it, you start believing it, you start getting more, more Ted Cruz's in the Senate, in the House, in the presidency, and then we can actually do it, actually do it. 
Because if they could pass it, they could definitely repeal it. That's the, that's the whole thing. No, it definitely should be able to be repealed. It's going to be more and more difficult. No doubt. The more time that goes on, because again, one of the things that they have done through this is they have amassed a huge increase in Medicaid enrollment. Hundreds of thousands, actually now millions of additional Medicaid enrollees, either directly or indirectly because of Obamacare, either through the Medicaid expansion or otherwise. Um, but definitely go check out this little piece of Ted Cruz. Kudos to him for continuing to keep on this. We're actually just about out of time. So if you have a comment on today's show, go to don'tletitgo.com. If you would like to patronize our sponsor, Audible, go to audibletrial.com forward slash Amy Peikoff, A-M-Y-P as in Peter, E-I-K-O-F-F. Next week, I'm actually going to be off because I'm going to be at a conference event. We're toying with the idea of having Bosch Boston fill in for me, but in any event, I will be speaking to you in two weeks. Have a great weekend. Say goodbye, Bosch. Take care, everyone. Okay, take care.